After nearly a full year in this book, with a little break in the summer, uh, we're down to two more sermons left in the book of Exodus. Two more sermons left. Started last January, first of the year, and we've been uh, trucking along, just making our way chapter by chapter, and we just got two left. And today we're going to take a big bite out of our uh, out of our text, the biggest chunk of this book that we've covered so far. We're going to cover five chapters in one sermon, and today's text is a bit of a weird one, uh, which is why we're going to cover it all in one sermon, because it's a little bit different. So as you open up to chapter 35 and maybe look around for a chapter or two, kind of skim through there, turn the pages if you've got your Bible or if you've opened up your app, you kind of look around, uh, you'll, you'll, you'll see that, that what we're going to cover is actually very similar to something we've covered here uh, just a few, a few weeks ago. But before we get there, I wonder as we look back over 2019, and uh, that's kind of how things go here at Providence, we kind of mark years by the books that we go through. Our books usually take us somewhere between a year, year and a half to go through. So we kind of mark the, the years by that. And so as you look, look back over 2019 and our walk through this book, if you've been here and been a part of this, what will be the big moments that you will remember Whenever you look back on the book of Exodus in 2019, as you think about it, now I know all of you were not here for all of 2019, maybe you just heard pieces of it, maybe this is your first Sunday here, but for those of you that have been here over the course of the last year, what will you take away? What will be the big moments? What's the message of this book that will resonate with you so that whenever you open your Bible and you see Exodus right there at the, the top of the page, What's the first thing that's going to come to your mind? I hope next week we'll be able to drill down on that a little bit more. Maybe I'll give you a couple of takeaways to, to go with that. But what else will you think about as you consider the book of Exodus? What, what maybe sermons stand out? What moments in the book stand out? Maybe a lesson that stands out from, for you that you personally learned and applied and took away how God has changed you over the course of the last year. As the... As the one that's preached a bulk of these messages, I hope that, that your heart has been stirred, it's been changed, that you've seen God even bigger and more glorious in some of these. And, and as we take a look at, at a few of those, one of the things that I hope stands out and that we'll talk about uh, a lot, one of the things that I've tried to drive home over and over and over in this book is that much of what happens in this book is based almost almost entirely on God's grace. Not on, Israel's, not on Israel's doing in order to draw, but it's based on God's grace. Now there's all these big moments that happen, but in each moment, it's God that comes to Israel. It's God that comes to Moses. It's God that comes to them and He says, this is what's about to happen. It's God that remembers Israel. Not due to any great deed done by Israel, simply because he is faithful. Not because of their faithfulness, but because of his. It's God that comes to Moses in the burning bush. Not because Moses was even looking for God, but because God chose to come for him. It's God's grace that's at the heart of all of it. And so the question that you're going to have to, you're going to, have to figure out is, if that's true, if God's grace is the heartbeat of the book of Exodus, you're going to have to figure out why does chapters 35 through 40 exist at all? Why do we even have chapters 35 through 40? 
Now I'm going to read the beginning of Exodus chapter 35, and I want to, I want to give you an idea of what I'm trying to get at here, what I'm trying to, to drive at. If you've read in the book or you've read ahead, I know some of you guys do that, then maybe you understand where I'm going with this. But if not, you, you're probably wondering, what, what is he trying to say? So Exodus 35, I'm going to read a pretty big chunk of Scripture here. I just want you to follow along with me, and then we're going to, we're going to answer the question, why is this here? Or at the very least, we're going to answer the question, what can we learn from this here. So Exodus chapter 35, verse 1. Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, These are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. Six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on, the, on it shall be put to death. Now we've already covered the Sabbath. If you're wondering what that's all about, you're going to have to go back and listen to that sermon. I don't have time to re-preach that one again. You shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple scarlet, yarns and fine twine, linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins and goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones, and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. So really what we're going to talk about is how you need to be giving more to the church. No, I'm just kidding. That's not what this sermon's going to be about at all. Um, Let's keep reading verse 10. Let every skillful craftsman among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded. The tabernacle, its tent and its covering, its hooks and its frames, its bars, its pillars and its bases, the ark with its poles, the mercy seat and the veil and the screen, the table with its poles and all its utensils and the bread of presence, the lampstand also for the light with its utensils and its lamps and the oil for the light and the altar of incense with its poles and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense and the screen for the door and the door of the tabernacle and the altar of the burnt offering. This kind of reminds me of that song. You know that song when you've got kids and it's like the, 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 the bird on the branch and the, the, however that thing goes and it goes forever. Do you all know what I'm talking about? And at some point, you're like, okay, this went from fun to annoying somewhere in there, and I don't know where it was. This is what this reminds me of. It just keeps going. The altar of the burnt offering with its grating, <coughs> grating of bronze, its poles and all its utensils, the basin and its stand, the hangings of the court, the pillars and its bases, and the screen of the gate of the court, and the pegs of the tabernacle, and the pegs of the court, and their cords, and the finely worked garments for ministering in the holy place, and the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons for their service as priests. And it just keeps on going. That's a lot. There's a lot of detail in there. And there's a lot that Moses is saying, all right, guys, you've been commanded to make all of this stuff. So what's the point? Why does Moses go into all this detail and lay out all of this stuff? If you've read through this book, what you find out pretty quickly, or if you've paid attention and just read as we followed through this, what you find out pretty quickly is that when you get to chapter 35, it's going to feel a little bit like deja vu. When you read 35, 36, 37, 38, 39, and most into 40, if you, if you go back to chapter 25, so if you've got your Bibles, you can just turn back to chapter 25 and you can look. Chapters 25, 26, 27, 28, 29... It's almost word for word the same text. It's almost the exact same thing. Now, whenever we went through this, we just kind of summarized it and then went on. But chapters 25 through 30 are almost mirror images to 35 through 40. What you see commanded in chapters 25 through 30 
you now see repeated in 35 through 40. But this time it's not in the form of a command. So Moses is saying, remember guys, you've been commanded to make all of these things. But instead of the command, what you see now in these 35 through 40 is the people carrying out the command from the earlier chapters. Look at their response in verse 20. Then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses, and they came, everyone whose heart stirred him, and everyone whose spirit moved him, and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting, and for all its service, and for the holy garments. And you just keep on reading, and what you read for the rest of these chapters is, is, is basically Moses' recounting of, here's all these things that, that God told us to do, and now here's us doing them. That's really all that these chapters are. They are obedient to the instructions that they had been given. They do all the stuff that we just read about and then even more. They build the tabernacle and they sew the curtains and they assemble the altar and the ark and they sew the veil and they build the table of presents and they craft the lampstands and they weave together the priestly garments and it's almost word for word the same between the two sets of chapters. So what, why would Moses include this in this book? I, I, mean, I mean, think about this. Wouldn't it have sufficed to have this all in there one time and then for Moses just to say, hey, remember what I told y'all before? We did it. And then all of our Bible readings just got shorter, right? Then all, everything just got a whole lot quicker. Could he not have just put that in there like that? Certainly he could have. So why isn't it in there? I mean, think about this. He's, he's writing this down. This, this is being kept for record on some form of, of parchment. This is not, I would not want to re, have to retype all this on my computer, let alone however Moses had to record this and write this down. And I'll be honest with you, I'm not 100% sure why Moses does this, but I know that we can learn from what we see here in these chapters this morning. So think about the two things that we've seen thus far in this book. We've had God repeatedly showing, initiating grace, and pursuing the Israelites due to nothing that they've done to earn that, right? We've, I've shown this to you almost every week, how the text brings this out, how God initiates, God sets the terms, God pursues, Israel on some measure responds. God comes to them. He acts. He frees. He leads. He saves. He feeds them. He delivers them. The Israelites quite literally do nothing, yet God acts. But then what we see is that not only does God act, after God acts, oftentimes Israel falters. Time and time again, they grumble. They build idols into the golden calf they whine and complain, wishing they could go back to Israel because at least they had food to eat and things were great there. And they totally forget the wonderful thing that God has done. And they are so unworthy of, of what God has, has promised them that God decides he'll give them what he promised, but then he's going to, to be done. He's not going with them any further. He'll give them what he promised and then he's going to back away until Moses intervenes. So the two things that we've seen is God's continued faithfulness and his initiating grace and Israel's continued ability to not do anything that they said they were going to do. To not follow through on any part of their end of the agreement. This is what we see over and over and over. And yet when we get to this part of the book, God is still there with them and he is not 
left them. Chapter after chapter, what we see now is it, it all changes. Everything gets very, very different. So what you see is we go from Israel does nothing that they're supposed to do to all of a sudden you get to chapter 35 and Israel's doing everything that they're supposed to do. They're following all the instructions. They're finally obedient to all the commands. They're doing what God has called them to do. So why now? If nothing that they did made God act on them in the first place, why does Israel decide to do what God has commanded them to do now? They failed almost every turn. Why, when we get to chapter 35, do we finally find Israel saying, okay, we'll do what you ask us to do, God, what you told us to do? If they can fail so spectacularly time and time again, and God never gives up on them, then why do they start listening now? Why not just continue the pattern that they've had, doing what they want to do, complaining when they want to complain, pursuing what they want to pursue? Why do this hard work? This is detailed, skilled labor. Why come and do this? After all, God's not going to give up on them. He's going to be faithful to His promise. He's shown that so many times. Could Israel not just keep doing their thing? Couldn't they just dismiss what God has asked of them? To be honest, we don't fully know why they decided to listen. But we do know that even if they had been fully disobedient, we know that God's promises still would have remained. And he's shown us that over and over in this book. So I'll ask this question. For Israel and for us, if the promises of God remain for his people in spite of their disobedience, why be obedient at all? It's a question that begs to be answered all throughout Scripture. This is the question that inevitably comes up when we start talking about things like grace. When we start saying that our salvation is from God's gracious action and His action alone, the question that arises, I'm going to word it for you a few different ways, and maybe you've either said or heard it worded these different ways. If God's grace isn't something that He decides to, to that if God's grace isn't something that I merit or earn, if God's grace is based purely upon whom he decides to show mercy to, this is what we saw last week, if what I do is irrelevant in God's initiating grace, then why does it matter what I do at all? Or to say it another way, if my obedience doesn't earn God's favor or my salvation, then what stops me from my disobedience? Well, I'll ask it another way. In light of all the talk we've done over the last couple of months about the law, if the Old Testament law is not still binding upon us, which we've seen repeatedly the last few weeks, and if God's grace isn't tied to His law, which we've also seen over and over, then why follow the law at all? What is its benefit to me? Can't I have my salvation and enjoy doing whatever I want to what does it matter what I do? God's sovereign and he'll show mercy to whom he shows mercy. And what I do doesn't cause him to initiate or not initiate. What does it matter what I do? And this question is one that gets at the heart of the Christian faith. And one that we need to consider this morning. One that I think these chapters kind of give us a pattern that will help us understand what it means to follow God. 
It's a profoundly important question with radical implications for us. You see, traditionally, there are two extremes that have described how we might answer this question. One says that if God commanded it, then we have to do it. If we don't, then that means God won't love us. To reject his commands is to, in effect, reject him. So we'd better mind our details and make sure that we don't break his commands. This end of the spectrum is what we would call legalist or legalism. You can put that up there, the, the, the timeline that's up there. So on one side is legalism that is there. So far, the, the book of Exodus has been a systematic takedown of legalism. It's been a systematic takedown of legalism that none of this would hold weight. Grace always precedes commands. So commands don't, don't earn or, or cause God to give us grace. Grace is always initiated by God, not by anything good in us. That is, in a very, very broad sense, legalism. The other end of the spectrum is where we believe that God's grace is sufficient to cover all of our sins. Not only that, since Paul says that we are dead to the law and the law has no power over us, if all of that is true, then we have a clean slate. And that slate will remain clean no matter what. So what does it matter what we do? The answer, it doesn't. This is what we call antinomianism. I know it's a big word. It's a different thing. So these are the two ends of the spectrum. Legalism, antinomianism. It's, it literally translated would be like against the law. So one says legalism, we have to do all these things to earn God's favor and to stay in God's good graces. The other one says it doesn't matter. Grace, grace, grace. I can do whatever I want. The law doesn't matter anymore. And there's a wide gulf between the two. And what I want us to see here in the next few minutes is that both of these views in some ways are right. And both of these views in some ways are very, very wrong. And what we have to do is kind of combine the two. And in so doing, we'll find the gospel. And in so doing, we will find Christianity. And the way I want to do this is I want to focus in on things that we lose when we get this wrong on either extreme. If Israel had not followed God's commands here in chapters 35 through 40, where they carry out all this stuff that we just, just read, what would they have lost? And then for you and me, if we don't follow God's commands, what do we lose? If we fall on either side of this, the legalist side or the antinomian side, what do we lose? So the first thing that I want us to see is that we will lose joy and flourishing. Joy and flourishing. Now, while the law may function differently for us today than it did for Israel in many ways, some ways it's still very similar. God's commands given within the context of the new covenant and God's commands given within the context of the new covenant and in the old covenant were in part de designed for the joy and the flourishing of God's people. Do you remember when we went through the 10 commandments, we talked about this. We said we said, if you follow the Ten Commandments, the essence of those commandments, even though they are not binding on us in the same way, they will be for your joy and your flourishing. This is what we talked about with the Sabbath, when we looked at the Sabbath. Are you bound to the Sabbath in the same way that if you don't keep the Sabbath, you're going to be killed, like what we just read here? No. 
But if you are able to keep the Sabbath in some measure and find that rest and find your rest in Christ, you will have a joy and flourishing that is different than those are, that are around you. The Ten Commandments are the basis for almost every legal code, Western legal code for a reason. They are the basis for this because people will look at the Ten Commandments and they will realize, at least, at least partially they will realize, that these commands will help produce a society that is functional and it will help produce a, a society that it, it gives a baseline, a, a kind of a baseline environment for society to flourish. So the Ten Commandments are important, and they, they put it out there because if you follow those, if a society legalizes those and puts those into its code, it helps the society to flourish. Things like murder and theft will destroy a society. Those cannot be left unchecked. Things like monogamy and contentment provide an, an environment where families can exist and they can begin to thrive. So God's commands for us serve very much the same purpose. You move from the Old Testament commands and the things that are laid out there for the people of Israel, and what God says, if you'll do these things, it will go well with you, Israel. And then you move to the New Testament, and you see very much the same kind of picture for, for you and I today. Take this from Colossians. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them, put them all away. That's a pretty clear command that Paul is giving there. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So the picture that Paul gives here is the new self is one that follows these commands. And that in so doing, in following these commands, that, that the new self, us as Christians, are given a path for our own joy. Each of these things in their, in their own may feel like a great thing and a good thing that if we were to pursue them, then, then we, we would have all these wonderful things. This is why we pursue sin. Because in the moment, sin feels and looks like it will be a great thing for us. But what God says through the commands in the New Testament is, that looks good, but you have to have faith and you have to trust in me that that is not what's ultimately good for you is good for you is if you will follow me and that will give you joy and you will flourish in those commands even whenever it feels hard even when it doesn't make sense even when that self-denial seems impossible it is better for you as many of you know over the past few months <clears throat> it's been very challenging for uh for my wife and i she's been battling ulcerative colitis and we've recently begun treatment at, at vanderbilt just a few weeks ago and uh, we saw a doctor, saw a nutritionist, and they gave Emily a handful of things that she needs to do, some medicines that she needs to take. So she's got prescriptions, she's got a routine, she's got a diet plan, she's got all this stuff she's supposed to do. She's got specific dosages at specific times, even had a, had a nurse come out to explain how this medicine works and the right way to give it and walk through all the details for it. Uh, she's got food that she needs to eat, food that she needs to avoid. We're kind of swimming in this stuff right now. It's kind of all around us. 
You guys have some idea what this is like. You've been to the doctor. You've been given a prescription. You've been told, go to the pharmacy, get this filled, take these pills, and you'll feel better. Take this medicine that tastes gross, but if you do it, you'll feel better. You understand what that's like. And, and what do you do? You follow the doctor's instructions. Why? Because you believe someone that knows more than you and that has seen more than you and has better training than you, you know that they know how to get you better. And you trust in that. You believe that following these instructions will ultimately result in your life getting better. That is a picture of obedience and following God's command. You reject those instructions at your own peril. Now, could you choose not to do them? Sure. Does that mean you're not their patient? No. But if you reject them, then you, you, you are going against what they have recommended. This will help you to feel better. And here's what we do. Oftentimes, we don't outright say that we're going to reject them, but this is what the Christian life is for a lot of people. We take those doctor's instructions. We take that prescription that's written out. We take that little piece of paper that's got everything kind of explaining everything. And we memorize the doctor's instructions. And, and we take that piece of paper and we say, man, this is really cool. This really inspires my soul. And we draw pretty pictures around the, the doctor's instructions. And then we go to studies and we learn more about the doc, what the doctor prescribed. We learn more about the original language that the, the doctor prescribed them in. We sing songs about the doctor's brilliant and marvelous instructions. We get together with others to talk about the instructions. We even exalt in how smart the doctor is for giving the instructions. But ultimately, it's actually following the, the instructions and taking the medicine and doing what we're told that will make us well. Not those other things. So it is with God's commands. We can, join, uh, we can join together on Sundays and we can sing about them. We can take part in Bible studies and we can learn about them. We can memorize verse after verse after verse. We can even celebrate how great God is for his commands. But ultimately, the only thing that will bring us fullness of life and joy is if we follow his commands. If Israel was ever going to thrive as a nation, they had to do what they were commanded to do if they were ever going to truly know God and experience the fullness as a nation that God had for them, they had to do what they were told to do. If they were going to have life and have it abundantly, they had to follow God's commands. And so it is for us. So that's the first thing that we lose, is joy and flourishing. The second thing that we lose if we don't follow God's commands is identity and purpose identity, and purpose. We've repeatedly talked over the last couple of months about how the old covenant gives way to the new in the person of Jesus Christ, how this changes everything, how the Spirit indwelling us changes everything, how the death of Christ changes everything from the old to the new. If you've missed that, you'll have to go back and listen to the podcast so that you can get it. But if you read, what we'll see is that the prophet Ezekiel and the prophet Jeremiah, they give us a little bit of a fuller picture of exactly how those things change. There's a lot of different ways, a lot of different things that change from the old covenant to the new covenant. But Ezekiel and Jeremiah have something where they talk about the new covenant and the things kind of come together and they will explain to us at least one aspect of what changes from the old to the new, which is what we are under 
Now, Paul cites this in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10. Paul says this. For this is, or he, he quotes these two prophets together, kind of a, a, of a mashup of, of a prophecy here. He says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts. One reality of the new covenant according to the prophets, is that God's law would go from being written on scrolls and tablets to being written on our, on our minds and in our hearts. These commands don't disappear, but where they reside changes. No longer is the law a matter of external enforcement, but it is now an internal reality. It's important to note that the commands don't go away completely. It's where those commands reside that changes. God still places commands in our lives, and He still expects us to follow them. Jesus says it this way in John chapter 14, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. What do we do with that? What happened to grace? I thought we've been talking about grace for a whole year. Where did grace go? Now Jesus says, if you love me, you're going to keep my commandments? That doesn't sound gracious. That sounds impossible. What are we supposed to do? Jesus' point there is not that if you fail to keep all his commands, then he won't love you. That's legalism. His point is also not that if you fail to keep his commands at all points, at all times, then you don't really love him. That's another form of legalism. His point is that his commands are still there, and your pursuit of them are an indication of where your heart is. If, 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 I, I told you back whenever we were going through the, the Old Testament law, when we were first kind of uh, introducing ourselves to that, I, I compared the Old Testament law to an MRI. You guys remember that, how we looked at that, and what we said is that the MRI can't heal us. It can't make us better. It can't fix us. That's not its job. That's not what it's designed to do. The job of the MRI is to tell us where we are broken. So it is with the Old Testament law. It tells us where we are broken. In the New Testament, the commands take on a little bit of a different form, a little bit of a different look. It still serves that purpose as the MRI, but it also gives us a little bit, little bit of a fuller picture. And another analogy that works well, I think, here is that, the, that it's a, maybe a little less like an MRI, and the, the law and the commands of the New Testament are a little bit more like a lie detector test. It will reveal outwardly what's true inwardly. It doesn't matter what we put out there. It will read our hearts, and when it reads our hearts, it will tell us what is true. Think of Jesus' comments, book of Luke, chap, Luke chapter 6. He says, for no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So do you have to follow God's commands to be justified? No. No. Only God justifies. But if you never follow God's commands, 
or his commands simply aren't that important to you, then, like a lie detector, it should be sending all kinds of alarm signals to you that says, your heart is in trouble. You are sick. If God's commands are not something that you pursue, they're not something you consider, if they're not something you you want to follow, now, I'm not saying we will follow them perfectly. That is abundantly clear in the New Testament that we will not. But if God's commands are not something that you pursue, something that you consider, if they're not important to you, then it will reveal that your heart does not truly love Him. Obedience doesn't make God love you. But if you love God, then it is inconceivable that God's commands would be irrelevant to your life. The two go hand in hand. 1 John chapter 5, John says it this way, By this we know that we love we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. They're not burdensome because we're not trying to keep them to earn God's favor. We're not trying to keep them to prove to someone that we really love God. They're not burdensome because they're written on our hearts and we pursue them out of the grace that we've been given. Just like Israel is here in chapter 35 of Exodus. They are not putting together this tabernacle saying, look at how much we love you, God. We built you this tabernacle. They're building the tabernacle because God has said, look how much I love you. Build this tabernacle. And they are responding to that love from God. They're responding to the grace of God. This is how it is supposed to work. It gives us an identity. And it gives us a mission. I had a lot that I was going to say here, but honestly, I think the song that we sang earlier sums it up pretty well. When the Spirit comes and the Spirit indwells us, it changes what we see, so it opens our eyes to see the commands of God, and it changes what we seek. That's our mission. It changes what we see, and it changes, He changes what we seek. So to follow God and to follow His commands, what we gain whenever we follow Him is we gain an identity and we gain a mission. And if we reject that commandment, we reject, if we reject His commands, we, we miss out on joy and flourishing and we don't really understand who we are and what God has designed us for. Finally, I want you to go back with me to the book of Exodus and turn with me over a couple of chapters to Exodus chapter 40, very close to the very end of this book. Exodus chapter 40. I'll show you one more thing that we miss when we ignore God's command. And what we miss is the glory of God. Exodus chapter 40, verse 34. They've built all this stuff now. These skilled craftsmen have come together, built all these things that God laid out for them that Moses explained for us. And then this is what happens. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. We can keep on reading. We'll read more of this next week. That is a beautiful picture. They've built all these things. And then God comes and dwells in their midst. The cloud settles on the tabernacle. Moses, who, who, who we just saw last week, saw the glory of God, can't even go in because God is there and is present. 
It was a result of Israel's faithfulness to construct and erect the tabernacle that they were able to have this moment and see the glory of God. Veiled, yes, in, in, in shadow, in the cloud, yes, but they were able to see it. They were witnessing God's glory filling the tabernacle, and they witnessed it because they had been faithful and they had obeyed his commands. Had they ignored God's commands, this moment could not have happened, would not have happened. So it is with us. If we do not follow God's commands, we will miss God. We will not know God. We will not be able to fully comprehend the greatness of God if we do not follow his commands. When we dismiss or ignore what God has called us to, we miss out on our own joy. We expose our hearts and we miss out on the, the awesome experience of seeing God work in our lives. This is one of the beautiful things about, a Christ, about, about, the, about, about living life as a Christian. We don't just observe externally like what Israel saw here. We don't just observe externally the cloud coming down. The beautiful thing is that whenever you follow God's commands, you see and experience the glory of God in your own heart because we are a sinful people. And we can be certain that when we obey God and His commands, that that is a sign that God is working in us, that He is redeeming us, that He is making us holy, that He is, making us, that he is conforming us, as it says, into the image of Christ. This is evidence of grace. And when we recognize this, we can rightfully give glory to God for His mercy, His goodness, for any strength that arises that causes us to follow His commands. To deny ourselves, go back to that Colossians passage, to, to, to deny ourselves in favor of following God's commands is to give glory to God. It confesses to ourselves. It confesses to others. And what it says is that our faith is, is not in our own understanding of what is, what is best for us, not in our own understanding of what we think will make us happy, not in our own understanding of what, what the sin has enticed us to. Instead, it says that our faith is in the goodness and the wisdom of God. That following His commands, no matter how hard it seems, no matter how impossible it seems at times, no matter how much it takes us dying to ourselves in order to do it, it is for our good. And it is for His glory. And anytime we place our faith in Him, He is glorified in that. Obedience is an act of faith. It is not a prerequisite for faith. Grace always precedes obedience because obedience is born of faith. Let me say that again. Grace always precedes obedience because obedience is born of faith. And so what you are able to see is that when you pursue God, when you have that moment where you, you do what God has called you to do, you can know that that was God's grace acting out in your life, you acting out on faith, and that gives glory to God. 
it's a beautiful picture of how this works. You know, we have these two extremes of the antinomianism, which says no commands matter. We don't need to do any of them. And then we have legalism that says, God, please love me. I'm going to do everything to make sure that you love me. But what the gospel says is, God, I know you love me, so your commands matter. I will respond to those, not because I need you to love me more, but instead because I know that you love me and I want to respond in that. I want, you to, I, I, want, I want to have faith in you and I want to glorify you in acting in obedience. That's the Christian life. That's the gospel. So yes, we follow his commands. Yes, his commands matter. Yes, we we pursue them, we learn them, we memorize them, we study them, we do all of those things that I said earlier, but then we do them. And in doing them, God is glorified, we are blessed, and this is what it looks like to live the Christian life. So yes, if you love Jesus, you will keep his commands. But his commands are not burdensome. Because they are an act of faith, following a good God who first came to you, who who called you from dry bones and put breath in your lungs. That's the gospel. That's the Christian life. Will you pray with me? Father, we confess that far too often, either your commands are not important enough to us or your commands are in our own sinful heart twisted and turned into something that we try to make about about us and not about you. Father, give us the picture of the gospel. Grace upon grace. And then give us a picture of faith and the ability to carry out what you've commanded. Because we know that this is love. Help us to to live out of that truth. Father, for those in here this morning that don't know what it's like to feel that conviction to follow your commands, make them restless. And Father, for those that are in here this morning that are burdened by your commands, make their hearts leap with joy as they feel your love and your grace. In Christ's name we pray, amen.